0: Hello and welcome to this new episode of The Lives and Styles of Old Hollywood. Today, I want to talk about Louise Brooks. Louise Brooks has been one of the most prominent icons of the 1920s and her dark, short, bobbed hair made her recognizable for all generations. And her life story is incredibly interesting. And if you are interested in seeing her act and speak, Luckily, we have YouTube. Her most famous movie, Pandora's Box, is available on YouTube to watch. And I just watched it, and it is marvelous. Additionally, you can find lots of interviews with her when she was a bit older. And I find it just fascinating to hear her talk. Because in a movie, she was a silent actress, so Pandora's Box is a silent movie. But her voice and the pronunciation that she has is so exquisite. So it really is worth just hopping over on YouTube, I will link some videos down in the show notes. So please have a look because I think it's just great honestly louise brooks has been the one starting my journey into old hollywood and into the lives and styles of all those colorful people it boasted because she was connected to so many people that i wanted to know more about so if you like this podcast you actually have to thank louise brooks for it because i was so inspired by her life and by the people that she knew that i wanted to spread the word and create this gem of a podcast so, without further ado, let's dive into Louise Brooks' life. Louise Brooks was born on the 4th of November in 1906 in Cherryvale, Kansas. Her parents were very much occupied with either their job, her father was a lawyer, or with the arts, because her mother was very artistic and she played piano very skillfully. So Louise's childhood was mostly unsupervised, and that is probably where she learned to be disobedient and not follow anybody. Keep that in mind when you hear about her story. She was raised in this very small town in Cherryvale, and that had a side effect, and if you have been growing up in a small town, you might know it. It's called hypocrisy, and as Louise Brooks puts it in her own words, it was a town where the inhabitants prayed in the parlor and practiced incest in the barn. So, you get the idea. (laughs) After Rail, then Independence, which is also in Kansas, and Wichita in 1920, Louise Brooks finally settled in Los Angeles in 1922, at the young age of 15. And there, Louise started training as a dancer with the Danish School, School of Dancing and Related Arts. This was a modern dance company. And Brooks not only learned from and danced with the two founders, but also with Martha Graham, who went on to define the new American style of dance and is iconic. As part of the dancing company, Louise even traveled abroad to perform in London and Paris and got a taste of the world. After this traveling, the company finally arrived in New York and Louise embraced the New York City lifestyle fully. This was when she was 17 years of age, but she was dismissed shortly after from the company after a personal quarrel with founder Ruth Saint-Denis about broken decorum. But what are friends for? Louise Brooks was best friends with Barbara Bennett, who was the sister of Hollywood duo Constance and Joan Bennett. So Louise landed employment as a chorus girl and went on a dance tour to Europe with Barbara. And during that tour, Brooks performed the Charleston, which was very popular in the US, but had not yet arrived in Europe. So Louise Brooks became the first woman ever to perform the Charleston in London. That might explain why she is sometimes the poster child for the jazz age. She was the one who introduced it. After her return in the US, Louise Brooks landed a gig as a semi-new dancer at the Siegfeld Follies. And it was then and there that Louise attracted the attention of Walter Wenger, who was a producer at Paramount Pictures, and he signed her for a five-year deal with the studio. So this is when Louise Brooks started her Hollywood journey. She started out in uncredited roles, but rose to leading roles in minor movies shortly after. Her genre was that of light comedies and flapper movies. And she started kind of a cult following with Howard Hawks' silent movie A Girl in Every Port. What made her so distinctive was her short, bobbed hair, that Brooks had actually worn that way since childhood. So she was one of the first ones, next to Colleen Moore, to fashion that hairstyle and influence a whole generation of flappers. A photo play interview from April 1926 is really insightful as how Brooks was supposed to look. It was just pure sex appeal, nothing else. The headlines and the text contain innuendos and her photo, which is like she posing in a leotard, certainly plays into that image, into being a seductress and being a beautiful, sexy young girl. The interview actually starts with Brooks making a remark on art and then being shut down by reporter Ruth Waterbury with the words, Well, be yourself. But actually, Louise Brooks would get to be known for reading Schopenhauer on set and being a really intellectual, well-read person, and not just the decoration to put in movies. Initially, Brooks stayed in New York and tried to work on the New Jersey movie sets, even when her husband, Edward Sutherland, was moved to L.A. to direct movies there. Eventually, though, she succumbed to the movie industry that moved west for the most part. Her stubbornness and her unwillingness to follow orders made her career in Hollywood a tough time. Remember when I talked about her childhood that she learned to be disobedient not follow commands? This is where it got into full bloom. Brooks actually declared that she did not want to make another movie with one of her earlier co-stars, but the studio forced her. So what did Louise Brooks do? Well, she was always late, but they could not fire her because it was already too long into the filming and she was too damn stunning. And these are her own words. She also detested B.P. Schulberg from Paramount. Brooks was different and she did not want to play the Hollywood game. She talked openly to magazines about what she thought about Hollywood and the producers, the man behind the system, and she had a very loose attitude towards fidelity and her marriage. Two things that didn't sit well with her reputation-conscious studio bosses. Thus, she was rarely ever granted a leading role – not even in the adaptation of the Dixie Dugan comic strip that was actually modeled after her during her Broadway days. So Dixie Dugan looked exactly like Louise Brooks and she didn't get the role. In 1928, Prooks, age 22, starred in her first talking role in Beggars of Life under the direction of William Wellman, who was also one of the two inventors of the boom mic. Because at the same time, on another set, a director used a mic hung up above actress Clara Bow to allow her to move freely. Well, moving freely was not a problem anymore for Prooks, and Wellman got her climbing on top of moving trains and thereby nearly killed her. Filming that movie became really tricky for Brooks. All the more, when the relationship with her co-star Richard Arlen got a bit different when Arlen, who was the best friend of her husband, learned about her cheating with a stuntman. By then, Brooks was very well connected in Hollywood. And she was frequently invited to William Randolph Hearst and his mistress, Marion Davies. As mentioned in the episode about Davies, I mentioned that her cousin Peppy Letterer was a frequent guest of theirs, And Brooks and Ladera had a brief lesbian relationship, the discovery of which probably led to the institutionalization of Peppy Ladera and her subsequent jump from the sixth floor of the hospital she was held at. This event traumatized Brooks and made her loathe the hypocrisy of Hollywood, the make-believe, the fakeness, and her distaste of the Hollywood industry got even more augmented when the race that Brooks was promised beforehand at Paramount did not go through. So, she decided to follow her friend George Preston Marshall's advice to sail with him to Europe and make films with prominent Austrian director G. W. Popst. And she did. This decision had consequences for her in the Hollywood bubble. She departed on the last day of shooting The Cannery Murder Case and sever ties with Paramount, which basically put her on Hollywood's unofficial blacklist of actors and actresses not to hire. But it even got worse when she came back and refused to do the sound retakes on the Cannery murder case. That's when Paramount pulled out big guns and started a and campaign, saying that Brooke's voice was unfit for sound, and that they had to hire actress Margaret Livingston to do her sound parts. This, coming from one of the major studios during the advent of sound movies, was basically the official end of Ruiz Brooke's career in Hollywood. But we do have her time in Germany and her time with G.W. Popst. Germany back then, in the late 1920s, was the only major rival of Hollywood's movie industry. The German Filmwelt, which means Film World, was highly glamorous and exclusive and had major appeal. And this is exactly the setting where director G.W. Popst flourished, because he was known for very refined, elegant films. And together with Papst, Proux filmed Pandora's Box, and that made her a major star. Pandora's Box was a film adaptation of two of Frank Wedekind's plays, and it was initially refused by critics as it treats themes like lesbianism, modern sexual mores, and infidelity in a very casual and very overt way. Papst had refused many other actresses in his quest for the perfect Lulu, which is the protagonist in Pandora's Box. He even refused to have Marlene Dietrich in it. But he chose Louise Brooks, because she was fairly unknown to major audiences and brought a new kind of charm to the screen. Brooks liked working with Pabst, as she recalled in later publication, because she was treated with respect and acknowledged as a real actress, not just a pretty extra. Brooks and Pabst actually had a one-night stand, and subsequently, Brooks also starred in his movie Diary of a Lost Girl, which deals with the theme of abuse and molestation. These two movies actually bewildered audiences because Brooks was very subtle in her acting, a bit like Lillian Gish, the queen of American cinema. It was subtle, naturalistic acting, which was way more adept for the medium of the movies. But the audiences were used to the exaggerated movements from the stage that early actors and actresses back then used to do also in the movies. And they blamed Louise Brooks for not acting at all, actually. As Brooks herself says about her acting, acting does not consist of descriptive movements of face and body, but in the movements of thought and soul transmitted in a kind of intense isolation. And one of the later film critics said about her acting, Brooks became one of the most modern and effective of actors, projecting a presence that could be startling. Pabst actually was the one who told Brooks to not go back to Hollywood, but stay in Europe, be a real actress and have success there. He actually warned her that she might end up like Lulu, her role in Pandora's box, alone and penniless. Keep that in mind. Pabst actually already had a feeling of the Hollywood scene, of what Hollywood would do to her and for her. He called Brooks a European soul that does not belong to Hollywood. Pabst was later interviewed by journalist Cedric Belfrich in 1930 and said that the mention of Hollywood would give Brooks nausea and that she detested its pettiness, its dullness, the monotony and the stupidity. Nevertheless, Brooks only did one more movie in Europe, Miss Europe in 1930 with Italian director Augusto Genina, and she returned to Hollywood. Why? Well, I could not find out actually why she went back. I guess she wanted to go back home, talk English, not doing what people tell her to do. So I'm still on the hunt for the answer. If I find it, you will find it in the show notes. But Upon her return, Hollywood snubbed her because of her trip to Europe, and she only got side parts as sisters or friends, never the leading role. Apparently, director Wellman, who had worked with her on Beggars of Life, offered her the leading role in The Public Enemy, which Prooks turned down and propelled Jean Harlow to stardom instead. Why did she turn down the first leading role that she was offered? Well, she went to see George Preston Marshall in New York, the one she sailed to Europe with. She actually claimed she turned down the role because she hated Hollywood, but close sources claimed that she simply wasn't interested, that she was more interested in Marshall at that time. But that movie role was the last time Hollywood would try to reach out to Brooks, and her turning it down was the real end of her career. So Louise Brooks declared bankruptcy in 1932, when she was only 26 years years of age, and she started to dance in nightclubs to earn some money. Four years later, in 1936, when she was 30 years, she did some bit parts in B-movies here and there, some even uncredited, and she starred in two movies in 1938. None of these were particularly successful, no critic mentioned Brooks, and nobody took notice of her. Her career prospects decreased, her financial troubles, on the other hand, increased. She was unemployed and the only people that wanted to see her were the men that wanted to sleep with her. And Walter Wanger, the one who had discovered her and that she had had an affair with and who had become her longtime friend, warned her, just like Pops did, that she would meet Lula's fate if she's not careful. So what did she do? Well, Louise Brooks packed her bags and after a little detour home to Kansas, she finally settled in New York City the city that she had begun her show career in and that she had been so eager to stay in. There, she worked as a radio actor, gossip columnist, and a sales girl at Sex Fifth Avenue in Manhattan. But that really did not bring in that much money. So Louise Brooks went on to become a courtesan between 1948 and 1953, a mistress to some very rich man. And finally, she signed on as an escort girl and became suicidal. All of her friends from Hollywood, all the rich and the beautiful, had completely forgotten her. And she wrote a tell-all memoir, which was called Naked on My Goat, which is a reference to German writer Goethe. But Louise Brooks threw that memoir in the fire and completely destroyed it. So there is no version of it still out there. In those days, Louise Brooks drank and escorted and didn't do much else. She actually had been a heavy drinker since the age of 14, and that just increased during that time. And it was in 1955 when French film historians rediscovered Prux's films and called her a bigger and better actress than Garbo and Dietrich. In 1957, there was even a Louise Prux film festival, which completely rehabilitated her reputation as an actress in the US. In 1956, Brooks got persuaded by the film curator of the George Eastman House, James Cart, to move to Rochester, New York, to be near the film collection so she could write about her past and study cinema. And so she did. She sobered up and wrote some very insightful pieces on the Hollywood she knew and cinema in general for magazines. And that became her second career. A collection of these articles is called Lula in Hollywood and was published in 1982, and it is still available Today, in Gish and Garbo, The Executive War on Stars, which is one of those pieces, Prooks is toe-telling the Hollywood bosses. Basically, she very analytically shows the deliberate damage that was done to both careers of Gish and Garbo to undermine their success and their power in Hollywood. Because the studio bosses feared that stars and not the studios would capture the audience's heart and steer the ship of Hollywood. So, when the female stars got too powerful, they were just exchanged for younger stars, less powerful and less expensive. And you know what Brooks wrote? I'll read out her own words. Hollywood producers were left with their babes and a backwash of old men stars, watching the lights go out in one picture house after another across the country. But what about Louise Brooks' love life? We want to know about that too, right? So Louise Brooks' love life definitely was influenced by sexual abuse from a neighbor when she was nine years old. The worst about it, her mother did not believe her and told her that Louise must have been at fault leading the man on, which is the worst thing to victim shame and to victim blame. Louise herself acknowledged that the abuse did not only cause physical damage, but also psychological problems that resulted in her never ever being able to fully love somebody. She also never went for nice, but always for dominant and aggressive men. When Prooks got discovered by Walter Wanger, she met Charlie Chaplin at one of Wanger's dinners, and they did have an affair for about two months, while Chaplin was married to Lita Cray. And guess what he did when the affair ended? Charlie Chaplin sent Louise Brooks a check. She, lady through and through, sent it back with a thank you note. Louise actually also had an affair with Walter Wanger at the beginning of her time at Paramount, while he was married to wife and fellow actress Justine Johnstone. Shortly after signing on to Paramount, Louise Brooks married Eddie Sutherland, a director on one of her movies. By 1927, she had gotten infatuated with George Preston Marshall, though, who owned not only a chain of laundries, but was also the future owner of the Washington Redskins football team. During her marriage to Sutherland, she also cheated on him and Marshall during the film of Beggars of Life with a stuntman. But in 1928, Brooks finally divorced Sutherland, mainly because of Marshall. Her ex-husband was really upset and even tried to commit suicide. Brooks and Marshall continued their relationship for a couple of years, on again, off again. He actually asked her multiple times to marry her, but... When he learned that she had had multiple affairs during their relationship, he eventually married Corinne Griffith instead, who was widely regarded as one of the most beautiful actresses of the silent movie era. So, Prooks went on and married Chicago-based millionaire Deering Davis, but left him after only five months and divorced him four years later. Prooks actually said that she had never been in love with a man and referred to herself as Baron Prooks because she never had children despite her many love affairs. One of her many lovers was William Paley, the founder of CBS, who actually paid her a small sum each month until her death, which actually kept her from committing suicide at least once. But, as I said earlier, Louise Brooks also had relationships with women. peppy Lederer, the niece of Marion Davis being one of them, but also Peggy Fierce and apparently a one-night stand with Greta Garbo and probably also with Marlena Dietrich. So Louise Brooks was a liberated woman. She did not make a clear cut of heterosexuality or homosexuality or bisexuality. She was just Louise Brooks with her sexuality. And last but not least, Louise Brooks' style. Louise Brooks had a very distinct style. Her short, bobbed, very angular cut dark hair, the heavy straight eyebrows and the heart-shaped mouth made her particularly beautiful and made her the poster child for the flapper. The 1920s, life-loving, free-spirited young woman of the jazz age. This style, together with fellow flappers Colleen Moore and Clara Bow, made her iconic for decades. Prooks was also the inspiration behind numerous artistic creations. As I mentioned earlier, the Dixie Dugan newspaper strip, but also the character of Sally Bowles in Cabaret, the Lulu in Something Wild, Also the inspiration behind Lyle from Roman in Death Becomes Her and the comic book character Valentina. And there are many, many songs dedicated to Louise Brooks. And now the lessons that I learned from her life. Reading up on Louise Brooks' life made me really sad in the beginning because she had a tough start to life. She was different than the others, but she was a very talented actress. She was supremely beautiful and she would have deserved a leading role, but she ended up an escort girl. She had a happy ending, though, and crafted a second career as a journalist and came back strong. Actually, when you watch her interviews on YouTube when she's around age 60, she's still fierce and independent and confident. And as I said earlier, her pronunciation is just exquisite. It's really a woman to really look up to. And so the lessons that I found in her life were stay where you are valued because she was valued as a very talented and great actress in Europe. Had she stayed there, her life would have unfolded very differently, I guess, because she was really hailed as like really good actress and she would have gotten better roles here in Europe. So as I said before, I don't know why she went back, but that was really not a good move. Marion Davis, on the other hand, she stayed with Hearst. She stayed where she was valued. Well, Louise Brooks didn't. second lesson, there's always a way. Your insights, your strengths, your learnings, they are valuable and there's someone who wants them or needs them. Her second career began because people realized she had some insights into what the medium of movie required. She had some insights into how the system operated and how it was detrimental and how it kind of cut the freedom of women and how it depicted women. So she knew things. She had strengths. She was clever. And People want to know about that. This is why she could have a second career. She should have just stayed with that longer. Third, be the smartest woman in the room. Never succumb to bullies and never play their game. She was very smart. Louise Brooks knew what she wanted. She was smart, probably was more intelligent than some of the men who led the studios. She never played their game. Fourth lesson, plan your financials for later. Live your life now, but don't forget the future you, who would be very grateful if you had your finances all together. So never just leave it up to chance. Fifth lesson, be a unicorn. Be different. Have the haircut. Wear the dress. Go to Europe. Dance with the wolves. Just be you because being like everybody else never pays off because nobody will thank you for it and you will be unhappy and if you watch the videos of louise brooks on youtube you see she is so confident she knows who she is she is you know louise brooks and this is something i love about her six connect with other women have your own little heaven with friends that you can lean on have your network louise brooks did have Barbara Bennett, but she didn't have like really close friends. She had a lot of acquaintances, but she did not have this like solid network that she could lean on in those hard times. And you could see how this was not serving her because like the superficial relationships that she had formed in Hollywood, they could not last her decline. So connect, be with your friends, find the tribe that you feel most comfortable with. And last but most important, work on your traumas. Never shy away from seeking help. This is your fantastic one life and time's too short here on earth to carry old wounds. Let them heal and get help healing them. Because this is just my theory, but if Louise Brooks had had help to deal with the trauma and get access to that emotion and just resolve it, her life might have been different. She might have had different ways of connecting with people, connecting with men, finding love, being with someone that she loved. It doesn't have to be a man. Work on your traumas, please. (laughs) But apart from that, Louise Brooks was just one fiery, inspiring woman. And I said it before... I have linked Pandora's box and also some videos in the show notes that I find incredibly inspiring. Let me know what you think if you find her just as stunning and beautiful and just mesmerizing as I did. I really would love to have your feedback on that. I will give you a link to my email down below in the show notes and I can't wait to hear from you. So this concludes this episode on old Hollywood icon Louise Brooks. I hope you have enjoyed it. I can't wait to talk to you next week. And I hope you have a wonderful week and some wonderful days in between. Bye.